Welcome to episode 88 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my guest is Jerry Flahive. He's a writer and creative consultant in Toronto. He's a former senior producer at the NFB, a local film hero, and a longtime patron of this podcast. Jerry, welcome to Junk Filter. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Jerry has used Twitter in a wonderful way. He's the voice behind the account Movie Mayor, a Twitter account run by the one and only Bert Xanadu, who is not only the mayor of Toronto in this alternate universe, but the manager of the Imperial Six Cinema, where it is still 1973. His tweets and essays have been collected in the new book, I Own This Town, the Mayor Bert Xanadu Xanthology. We'll talk about the book, but we're also going to talk about two mutual favorite topics of ours, cities and movies, and what it was like to go to the movies in Toronto in the 1970s. Now, Jerry, you worked at the Imperial Six. You answered a wand ad in the Toronto Star. Ushers and usherettes, full and part-time, apply in person, Imperial Six, 263 Young Street. Yeah, that was that was me. I had been... Uh... A big fan as a, as a kid. I was 16 at that time, but I had been going to the Imperial, the grand theater that uh, uh, occupied the same space and was was carved into six theaters. And so uh, it was right around the time I needed a summer job and and uh, what could be better than working in a movie theater. And it seemed like some fantastical vision of future movie going. In fact, uh, it was such an unusual space that famous players opened it for a week prior to showing any films for free, just to allow people to look at what do six cinemas look like? How does it work? Do I buy one ticket or six tickets or can I go to more than one movie? And so we were all standing there as ushers, just guarding nothing in that first week. But uh, it was an amazing period of my life. And uh, I feel it was this moment between old timey showbiz showmanship uh, that, that uh, movie theaters exhibited for decades prior and the kind of end of that, the beginning of the kind of corporatization of, of movie going and a multiplexes taking over completely. Yeah, the Imperial Six was actually one of the very first multiplexes in the world. And Toronto was kind of on the bleeding edge in the 70s of the multiplex concept. Because mm-hmm. back in the 70s, movie theaters were, uh, especially the movie theaters in downtown Toronto, were one screen cinemas. Uh, that were former, uh, you know, musical theater venues. So the Imperial in its original life was a a vaudeville house. It was originally built in 1920 or something. Yeah, around that, yeah. Yeah, it was opened in 1920 as the Pantages. It was named after Alexander Pantages, who was a prospector turned theater and vaudeville empresario. But I found out something interesting I didn't know in my research in 1930, the name of the Pantages was changed to the Imperial, and Famous Players uh, was running the place at the time. Famous Players was a theater chain that was sort of a division of the original Famous Players company, which turned into Paramount Pictures. So the movie studio had a presence in Canada that was tied very closely to, to that movie company. Mm-hmm. But they changed the name of the building because Alexander Pantages in 1929 was convicted of raping a 17-year-old chorus girl in the States. Wow. So his name was removed from all the theaters that his company managed. They, they might want to let the owners of the hotel on Victoria Street, which has been called the Pantages, or was for a while, let them know that. That's, yeah. fa- that's faded into history. And, and the Imperial, there was this sort of blurry period in the 30s where if you look at some of the old ads, they were showing movies and they still had some live performances. Uh, 
uh, I remember seeing an ad for um, the Marx Brothers Night at the Opera, and uh, when it opened, I think around Christmas in the mid '30s, and uh, there was a live show uh, uh, prior to the prior to the to the screening. So that lasted, I guess, you know, into the '30s, and then it just became cinema only. Mm-hmm. When Garth Drabinsky took over the the venue, which we'll discuss later in the show, they changed the name back to the Pantages, mm-hmm. and uh, it was called that for a while. But I digress. The theater had 3,206 seats, and I read that it was the largest theater in the British Empire when it opened. I do remember. I remember going to see uh, films there when I was a kid. Uh, I saw Planet of the Apes there in 1968, and it's just kind of hard to imagine now going into a matinee of a film in a 3,200, 3,000, 3, seat theater that there maybe were, you know, 40 people there. And that was still somehow seen as a viable business. I mean, at night it would fill up, I suppose. But uh, certainly by the time it became the Imperial Six, it it was packed. You know, every theater was full on a Saturday night. Yeah, I was reading some memories of, uh, you know, elderly moviegoers talking about going to see movies at the Imperial. And they said that the balcony seating, uh, which in the multiplex era was cinema number two, was apparently a fantastic view of the venue and the screen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's, I mean, uh, it, it's been restored several times. It's now going through another change because I think they've, I don't know if they've gutted it, but they're transforming the space now. Cause now it's called the Ed Mervish theater for production of the new Harry Potter, uh, play. So I've seen photos that they've stripped it back to the bones, I think, and added new elements and everything. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's been a theater that's constantly gone through changes over the, over the decades. In fact, there was a brief period after uh, Durbinsky took over the Imperial Six where it ran as a, a single screen cinema, a, a, mm-hmm. a portion of it. So it's had this very checkered history and um, uh, it's still there. You can see uh, evidence of what the Imperial must have looked like when you go see something at the Elgin and the Winter Garden Theater, mm-hmm. they were all designed by the American theater architect Thomas Lamb. He also designed the Uptown. Uh, they've managed to preserve the original look of the Elgin and the Winter Garden. Uh, it's uh, how would what, how would you describe it? It's like mirrors and chandeliers and faux marble. Yeah, I guess I might be misusing the term, but Rococo comes to mind. A very mm-hmm. sort of grand space. I, I I would have to say maybe this is the most Toronto thing I could say. These cinemas, they never rose to the level of splendor of, of some of the American and British uh, and, and French, you know, European cinemas, the grand cinemas of that were, you know, stylized as Egyptian or Aztec or something. You know, they mm-hmm. were large, beautiful cinemas, but they weren't uh, o- over the top um, in, in the way those cinemas were. So maybe traditional Canadian reserve. We'll have our entertainment, but not take it, not take it too far. But, you know, by the 70s, the Elgin Winter Garden was... Uh, no, uh, most people had no idea that we're, there was a, a, a another theater space inside uh, the Young Theater, as it was called. So, mm-hmm. for us working at the Imperial Six, the the Young was just a single screen kind of you know a, a dumpy th- movie theater that played kind of very even cheesier movies than uh, the Imperial Six did sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to uh, use your knowledge of uh, Toronto movie going to take the listener on a walk down all the movie theaters that used to exist on Young Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll start up at uh, Bloor and Young. The Uptown was up there. The Hudson's Bay Center Plaza, right. which was a two-screen theater. 
Did you ever see a movie at The Town, which was across the street? Yeah, The Town was a beautiful single screen space. And it was often, um, as I remember, it was often used for, it was sort of an art house before there were really rep cinemas in Toronto. And uh, in fact, when the Toronto Film Festival was the festival of festivals starting in the 70s, I remember sitting there with my my girlfriend, we'd watch five movies in a row. I mean, the TIFF was a little less uh, uh, doctrinaire about passes and things like that. You, if you had a pass, which I did was 25 bucks as a mm-hmm. film student, you could just stay in the same seat for, for, uh, for five screenings. And I think the town had one of those uh, one of those features that the bluer has now, where it's, uh, there's a, a wall of glass uh, between the lobby and the, and the cinema, um, so that uh, you know people can see the movie, continue seeing the movie, or or mothers with babies could watch it. But the town was a a, a beautiful space, and then uh, the uptown, which was um, a little bit different than the Imperial Six in that it did have a front and back entrance, but the back two were called the backstage. It almost had its own identity and same thing i i kind of remember the programming you know you might have a james bond movie in the front in the in the big three theaters uh, that uh, uh, came off young street but at the back it was a little artier uh quirkier stuff and, and i think the sheer number of cinema screens in toronto meant that there were often uh films that would just never get played theatrically now they had to fill fill the space so and they were able to rotate uh pictures through but that you know that young and bluer uh, and, and the varsity came came a little bit later. The Young and Bluer area was a really rich place for movie going. Yeah, I went to the backstage a lot when I was a kid because the 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 movies that were shown in downtown Toronto very very eclectic fare. Like for some reason, I went to the backstage when I was a kid to watch the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes movie, The Hound of the Baskervilles, wow, which got wow. a theatrical re-release <laughs> for some reason. And I had, you know, arty parents who were like, let's go and see some classic cinema with the children. Right. So so I remember seeing that. Uh, I went to see Pumping Iron, the documentary about Schwarzenegger and wow. versus Lou Ferrigno at the backstage. I saw Rocky at the backstage. Um, I was very interested in seeing movies for grownups from a very young age. So... Um, yeah, so I wound up going to the art house movie theaters a lot. There was another theater that, uh, on just South of the uptown that was also used for the film festival that was called the New Yorker cinema and then got its name changed to the showcase. Yeah, that was uh, actually, I, I believe at one time it was, uh, operated by, uh, uh, I hope I'm right by Gary top, who was one of the, the operators of the 99 cent Roxy, the famous 99 cent Roxy, where I spent much of my teen years uh out on on the danforth and so it was run as a kind of rep cinema art house rep cinema and fantastic array and and i think if i'm not mistaken they had live performances there i think the ramones played there Mm -hmm. uh during during their their uh that that period and there was another cinema that was just you know a few feet north there called cine city that uh uh right at young and charles that was really the kind of hippie counterculture, you know, the midnight screenings, uh, uh, you know, stoner kind of place. Uh, but again, unbelievably eclectic range of range of stuff up and down that stretch. Mm-hmm. The Cine City's location is where the McDonald's is at Young and right. Charles now. Right, right. But, and, you uh, know, you yeah. could you, you could kind of move through your, you know, I was uh, 
in my teens and, and really interested in movies. And then when I worked at the Imperial Six, you know, I could get free passes to see movies at famous players theaters, but you could kind of evolve your film education just up and down that stretch. You know, you might start at the uptown with, uh, you know, something very mainstream, you know, a Burt Reynolds picture or something, you know, move down to the New York or the town, see something. It's like, Oh, it's a foreign film with subtitles. You know, that's kind of weird. Uh, and somewhere in the middle with Cinecity, you know, uh, something late night and underground and uh, subversive. And so all of that in that neighborhood was, uh, you know, quite a selection. Yeah, because back then when Cinecity existed, there was still that sort of hippie neighborhood of Yorkville. Mm-hmm. So this was like the counterculture sort of part of town. Yeah, and there were some there were some alternative spaces too. You know, Rochdale College, the famous kind of... Um, uh, uh, you know, subversive uh, uh, college, which really just became a, a drug haven residence uh, on Bloor Street, not so far from there. There were sometimes screenings in there. They, I, I don't remember anything that I went to there, but you know, they would just screen films. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a little tiny place on Avenue Road north of Bloor called the Silent Cinema, which I think was just an empty room above a, a, a hairdressing salon or something that showed silent movies. So the, a kind of tolerance, I guess, for alternative screening spaces that now probably would not be uh, either just wouldn't be viable or, um, you know, wouldn't be accepted uh, for safety reasons or whatever. But, but also there were, you know, there were, there were 16 millimeter uh, prints available, all these 60 millimeter prints lying around. So it was a relatively cheap thing for somebody to just go into the film exhibition business. Yeah. And just at the top of Young and Bloor, we should also mention the other two significant movie theaters that were up there, which was the Varsity, which was a two-screen theater in the Manulife Center, where I saw Star Wars as a child in 1977 in 70 millimeter, and the uh, late and lamented University Theater, which was Toronto's greatest movie theater. It was an art deco palace. Yeah, the, the, the Varsity, I remember seeing Tommy there and that was this moment i remember a lineup for tommy the 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 who picture with you know jack nicholson's in it and ann margaret um i remember being in a lineup and that was this moment where you realize okay there's something changing about movie going here because they still you know it was very popular and i i think maybe the picture wasn't playing in that many places so there was a huge lineup but the lineup had to snake down these sort of corporate hallways past dentist offices yes. and down <laughs> fire exits and everything it wasn't quite like the imperial six or the university where we had all of you know the the streets of toronto to make people thousands of people wait in the freezing cold we were yeah. now inside this shopping mall feeling. So it was, it was a bit odd, but the university, absolutely. That was, I saw apocalypse now there and the empire strikes back. And, uh, um, it's, it's almost a, an insult to the people of Toronto that these things, you know, the, the particular Toronto architectural, uh, style of facadism that, you know, the facade of the university is still there. In fact, the box office is still there. Uh, mm-hmm. you'd have to be as old as me to realize that little piece of curved glass, is is uh, box office where where my my wife worked uh, briefly as as a cashier. So, it's it's to see go past it. I shed a tear every time to see, to imagine. Uh, and it was used. It was used by the festival festivals for yeah. some of the grand. Uh, I think stop making sense uh, was was premiered there, and, and I, oh. I'm pretty sure David Byrne was there. And there was even a, a tribute to Warren Beatty with Jack Nicholson and. Uh, uh, a couple of other people on stage that I attended. So, you know, I mean, 
I, I to not know what it's like to see a movie with three thousand people or two thousand people, particularly mm-hmm. a comedy or or an action film, is mm-hmm. uh, I, I you know I mean you just you can't do that anywhere in Toronto. Yeah, I had a mind blowing experience uh, seeing Logan's Run at the university in seventy millimeter when I was wow. like seven years old. Wow! wow. <laughs> Why wow. would you take a seven year old to see Logan's <laughs> Run? I don't know. Why not? Um, now, further down Young Street was uh, were some other movie theaters that time has forgotten. There was a beautiful, beautiful uh, movie theater called the Carlton, which mm-hmm. was right at the corner of Young and Carlton, mm-hmm. which, which had a spectacular marquee. Uh, you can find old photos of it on the internet. Not to be confused with the Carlton Cinema multiplex that opened up in the 80s down the street. Yeah, it's almost, I, I think it's almost in the same spot geographically but uh i remember seeing uh james james bond films would open there so i saw uh diamonds are forever which would be 71 or something but it famously had uh, an, an organ that rose up from the stage uh i, I don't think they had it at every performance but uh you know a, a giant pipe organ with a guy playing it uh, i don't know what occasions that was saved for and uh i kind of remember too there that and maybe other cinemas did this too, that the first screening of the day, uh, they would play either O Canada or God Save the Queen. So, uh, mm-hmm. yes. uh, and, and still, you know, curtains that, uh, motorized curtains that would open. And so that, mm-hmm. that one's less remembered than the university, I think, but it was, it's maybe just an indication of how work a day cinema going was that, you know, we could have a grand palace like that. And it's, it's very, uh, not really remembered much. And And then of course, you don't, you don't have to go too far east or west on, on streets like College or, or Bluer to have stumbled across, you know, seemingly dozens of, of neighborhood cinemas that are just, you know, pretty much completely forgotten now. Just that habit of going to movies all the time was, was, uh, it was present in every neighborhood. When I was a kid, if you went to see the first movie of the day at a movie theater, I assumed that this was a theatrical exhibition rule they would show uh, O Canada and God Save the Queen before right. the movie. Right. And I remember getting yelled at by other people in the movie theater if my smart-ass friends and I just sat during the <laughs> national anthem. <laughs> Anti-monarchist uh, yeah. children. Now, further down Young Street were three of our glorious grindhouse theaters. Uh, Young between uh, College and Dundas was sort of the equivalent of 42nd Street for Toronto. And we had uh, three theaters, the Coronet, which uh, you can sort of see the shape of the building still, but it's a jewelry store at the corner of Gerard and Young on the uh, on the northeast corner. Then there was the Rio. Uh, the building has now been knocked down and is being turned into more Ryerson stuff. And uh, I went to movies at the Rio all the time because it was wonderful. And the Biltmore, which was a theater right north of Young and Dundas, which I never went into. Mm-hmm. That, uh, you know, it, it, that also speaks to something. It was a little different experience of the Imperial Sex, but those kinds of grindhouses where you'd see, um, you know, the marquee, I love that the marquee was sort of like the facade of the building. It sort of often with the posters and what was playing, it went right from the sidewalk straight up and it would say, you know, four pictures or three, three mm-hmm. films. And this notion of that, that's people would go in for an entire day. Yeah. And this the cinema as a place of, of respite and, and, uh, you know, often at the Imperial six, it was, you know, just traveling salesmen who were still around and they just, so it, it didn't matter what film was playing. People wouldn't, 
wouldn't pay any attention to what was playing or whether the show had already started, uh, mm-hmm. you know, which it seemed perverse to me. I mean, how you could walk in in the middle of a film. Um, yeah. But those kinds of places lent themselves to that because, you know, if it was five uh, Clint Eastwood movies, you know, does it matter really if you've come in yeah. in the middle, uh, you know, yeah. uh, uh, of Thunderbolt and Lightfoot or, uh, you know, a play Misty for me or something? It's you're going to you're going to get the gist of uh, Magnum for us pretty quickly, you know, yeah. no matter what time well, you're going. Well, these are the early days, like the late 80s, early 90s, where one wouldn't certainly wouldn't find the listings for what was playing at the Rio or Showtimes. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't have Grindhouse Showtimes. Right, right. Uh, so they would have a little uh, sign up in the window of the marquee. Uh, in the box office window that would say what times movies would start. So one time a friend of mine and I, I did the research. I was like, okay, so truck Turner starts at four uh, 25 tomorrow afternoon. So we went to go and see truck Turner and we arrived for the last 15 minutes of a really, really tawdry uh, trashy looking porn. <laughs> so I had to sit there and watch the end of this terrible exploitative looking, uh, 70s porn film and then truck turner started right and you were so disturbed you couldn't figure out the plot of the porn film you, yeah you, it was like you, what's going on it, who's what's that? going on yeah is that his wife <laughs> um so yeah so i i mean our grindhouse cinemas all closed the rio was the longest lasting one it lasted into the mid 90s um and lest i forget there was a porn theater called the cinema 2000 which was oh, yeah, just think, north of Dundas on Young Street. Yeah, I think that that was notable for being one of the pioneers of video. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know what they were using, you know, U-matic tapes, one-inch tapes, or VHS maybe at the end or something, or discs. I mean, I don't <laughs> know. But I think that was uh, that was seen as kind of this futuristic way, and I, I don't know what, what how big the, the space was, but... Um, they were, you know, again, I mean, I'm not a discerning cinema going public there. It was just, uh, you know, just walking in to see what was ever on the screen at that particular second. Yeah. And then in the south part of downtown Toronto, there was a incredible movie theater that I actually did get to see uh, when I was a kid called the, it was called The Cinema in the TD Center. Yeah. Uh, Mies van der Rohe, the architect, uh, designed the building and he also designed the movie theater. It was it was an extraordinary space, and it was a kind of um, an optimistic uh, um, move by the by the builders, by the developers. The idea that this first huge office complex, and also which had a uh, a really you know stylish um, and still does a stylish sort of uh, f- um, shopping area down on, underground, with uh, uh, Vanderoe even insisted on uh, you know the typeface for uh, all the storefronts had to be the same and it was consistent mm-hmm. design all the way through. But the, the idea was that we'd have these th- thousands of people in this building. Surely at the end of the day, they would want to go to see a movie. And of course people, nobody lived downtown in that part of town. There were no condos. So people just left and went home. So it didn't survive that long. I do remember going to see a TIFF used it, I think in its first year or so. Mm-hmm. And there were some very high end, um, arty uh, films that played there like portrait of the artist is a young man and they had you know the old time paper tickets with the with the title of the film on and the date print pre-printed but even the lobby furniture the the chairs were i think Mies van der Rohe chairs i don't know whether they're in some bank vice president's home now i i had heard that it was basically converted into a vault for yeah. for the bank so it's i don't even know if the 
if the, you know, the bones of the structure are still there, but, you know, it's one that I really, uh, missed, um, and, and wish it could have, could have been revived, but I'm sure it was, it was, um, dynamited, uh, all of the, the, the yeah. theater space. Well, I was looking, uh, cause yesterday, the 25th of May was the 45th anniversary of star Wars and star Wars didn't actually open in Canada until the release widened in June of 1977. So I was looking to see what movies were playing in Toronto on the day that star Wars premiered in the States and the TD cinema was screening 2001. Oh, wow. Full wow. Eight years after it was released. Wow. Back then movies would play for a long time, or they would just keep coming back around. There were certainly movies that you could always get people to come and see. But, um, you know, we live in this age now where, uh, there's a lot of hit and run business, like a movie like Dr. Strange will monopolize all 20 screens in a multiplex and make the tons of money that it makes crowd all the other titles off the screen. And then two weeks later, you're back to sort of, you know, regular programming with a movie in every cinema. But, um, there was a time where you didn't know whether you were going to get into a movie. You couldn't buy tickets in advance, you know? Uh, so movies would play for years uh, because people just kept getting turned away and the demand was always there. It was a way of sort of stretching out the audience for a movie. And plus there was no home video. So if you wanted to watch 2001 again in 1977, you had to go to a movie theater. Yeah. I, I, I mean, 2001 played at the Glendale way up in North, uh, North end of the city for two years, which I think was maybe the longest run in the world. Um, but again, it was in 70 millimeters. So there was, uh, you know, Cinerama style cinemas. There weren't very many of those spaces where something like that could play in its original form. And of course, Kubrick had very specific instructions to projectionists all over the world about, you know, how to present the film and, and how many lumens and all of that stuff. Um, but you're right that films came back. I mean, I remember at the Imperial Six in 73 or 74, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid came back. It opened in 69. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and it was packed. I mean, every screening was packed because that film had been so popular. And then, of course, it just it just disappeared. And it wasn't the kind of film that uh, would show up at grindhouses. I think, you know, studios would keep uh, a quality popular film like that out of the, you know, the release CD movie uh, theaters or, or uh, repertory houses. So. Mm-hmm people hadn't had a chance to see that film. And, uh, so, so films would come back and, uh, uh, and, and then disappear again for, for, for years. Yeah. It was a very, yeah. very long time before you could see some stuff. Yeah. Like I went to see Harold and Maude when I was a kid, uh, maybe when I was six or seven, again, parents thinking, uh, you know, let's take the kids to see Harold and Maude. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I didn't see Harold and Maude as a five-year-old. I think I saw it as an eight-year-old. So it was probably <laughs> 1978 or something like that. But right. Harold and Maude was the kind of movie that would come back around again and play in uh, first-run movie houses. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, too, that uh, how audiences... Um, I don't know enough about this, but, you know, I think about as a moviegoer at that time about how films might build, you know, reputations would build. I mean, I remember seeing Harold and Maude many, many times at the 99 cent Roxy and places like that. So we just keep coming back, you know, and you think, is that going to make a difference if a film plays once every t- 23 weeks somewhere? But mm-hmm. as that c- came over a year and year and year, you know, it, 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 films developed a reputation. And so something that I don't think Harold Maude was much of a success on its first run, but you know, it did build this profile um, just because it had a chance to be seen mm-hmm. on, on the big screen in a way that, you know, films now would be, uh, would be gone very, very quickly. 
Yeah, I mean, this was the age where you had such a thing as legitimate cult movies. You know, 2001 would count as a cult film, and so would something like Harold and Maude. So they would come around again, and there was certainly a, a demand for it, because in 1977, how else would you watch Harold and Maude? There was, you know, it might show up on the CBS movie of the week, but other than that, you know, there weren't a lot of movies on television back then, the, uh, the way that there are movie channels now, and there wasn't home video. I think too, what people would be, uh, wouldn't accept now was that the, uh, film prints were often in terrible condition. I mean, I had a summer job at Harborfront. I was assistant to the film program there, a wonderful person named Hannah Fisher. Uh, and so in the summer of 1980 and I, I helped program screenings and I also was the projectionist for the late night Friday, uh, uh, screenings, which were often slightly erotic, uh, you know, uh, arty, brainy erotica. But I remember doing this program, Hannah gave me a free hand and I, I came up with this idea for a, a program called the great British. That would be, you know, 10 classic British films from the fifties and sixties. And then, uh, I got on the phone and called, uh, the distributors and discovered that either the prints, even though they were in the catalog, the prints were gone or they were damaged or they were, you know, kind of, um, in, in terrible, terrible shape. And so, um, you know, we, we end up screening stuff sometimes that looked really, really awful. And, and so a film was essentially just un, unavailable, um, just for those, just for those reasons, the physical wasn't that it was out of circulation or the rights had expired. It was just the print was in, uh, abominable condition. Yeah. And, and places like the Rio, one of the reasons why they still operated as a grindhouse showing four big hits every day from 9 a.m. until 4 a.m. was because you could get film prints from the film studios domestically back then. Mm. Like Warner Brothers had all these movies, uh, you know, at their headquarters in North York. Uh, you know, that's this is the challenge for theatrical exhibition at this point is that uh, the studios don't keep that kind of stuff around and movie theaters have uh, pulled all the projectors out of the cinemas and now it's DCPs. It's really limited... Uh, the the scope of what can be shown in terms of repertory and cinematech programming. Yeah, I think I think that the despite the fact that the sort of film festival culture started here with you know um, with art houses like uh, the New Yorker and the Capitol, a woman named Linda Beeth was a great uh, exhibitor and, and distributor and, and had all these incredible films. And then the festival started, despite the fact Toronto developed this reputation as you know one of the top cinema going. Uh, cities in North America, certainly. I remember as a teenager being proud. That, I don't know why I had this civic pride that, you know, a Woody Allen film would open in New York, LA, and Toronto on the same day. You know, we're we're part of the big, uh, the big league. But at the same time, it just, uh, it didn't translate, I think, into um, uh, a kind of understanding of, of, of how many films were out there, how many films hadn't been seen, an opportunity to, to bring those films back. It, it, you know, I think Toronto audiences were often kind of criticized for being uh, too easygoing uh, about, you know, films that weren't that great. Um, so yeah. love going to the movies, but, you know, we you, you get the cinema culture you deserve, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I remember one year I was going to the Toronto Film Festival and, you know, this was when most of the movie theaters were downtown on Young Street. And I noticed that uh, one of my faves, Year of the Dragon, was playing at the Rio. 
during the film festival. So I took a night off from seeing films at TIFF to go watch <laughs> Mickey Rourke in a grindhouse. And I felt a certain amount of civic pride that I may be the only person in Toronto who went to TIFF and the Rio on the same day. <laughs> Those two, that doesn't seem so far apart now somehow, but yeah, that, that di- great divide was definitely there then. So this leads me to um, talking about the place that you worked and the inspiration for Bert Xanadu, the Imperial Six, which was once a big movie house with 3,000 seats called the Imperial. It closed in 1972. They renovated it um, and turned it into a multiplex. And I want to hear from you uh, the story of this evolution and how it drew you like a moth to the flame of cinema. Well, it you know, for me, it was... Um... Uh, the explosion of my brain was in 1968 when I was 11 and saw 2001 A Space Odyssey. That was it. I was, I was done for life. And, uh, you know, it had to understand, not even seeking to understand the film is just understand how they made the film. And so I was often trolling, uh, stores. There was a great, uh, uh, despite the name, it was called theater books. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there was a, a store called Cine Books, actually, um, mm-hmm. on Young Street near, near Wellesley that had all these film books and posters. And I would go in and sort of throw myself at the mercy of uh, the, the the owner there just looking for books to, you know, I would be 13 or something trying to understand how special effects were done. So when the Imperial Six arrived in, in 73 uh, and I was 16, uh, I just, you know, th- this, this seemed like Disneyland, uh, you know, that there's six movies. I mean, the truth be told, one of the greatest appeals for anybody of my age at that time was just the social life. You know, there were, there were on a Saturday night, there were over a hundred employees, uh, well over a hundred people working at that place on a Saturday night in 73, 74, there would be 35 ushers on duty. Uh, plus you've got all of the, uh, cashiers and you know candy girls and usherettes. There were occasionally usherettes, so it was an incredible social life um, for for me and for us at at that time. But um, it 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 also was uh, the array of films that were shown there. From you know theater two, as you said, was kind of the big cinema. So films like Godfather Part Two or Towering Inferno, which I think were playing at the same time. One uh, exciting Christmas. Um, uh, the Longest Yard with Burt Reynolds, those big pictures would play there. But the cinemas, all, all all the spaces had their own little quirky qualities. And so you'd find these very strange uh, oddball films that would just never get a theatrical release now would, would show up there as well. So, and I never knew, you know, there was no way of knowing, there was no, um, you know, there wasn't the kind of pop culture understanding of like, this movie is coming out in two months or everybody knows when the next James Bond movie is coming out. You had no idea what was coming out. In fact, yeah. you know, I'd go to work on a Friday and it just would be a complete surprise to me is like, what was going to be, what was be playing there. But when it opened in 73, the, the six movies kind of represent uh, both the old school and and new approach to to cinema at the time, like in theater one, which was you know six hundred and fifty eight seats, so it was pretty big, was a film called The Neptune Factor, which was a kind of Canadian tax shelter ripoff of the Poseidon Adventure. Um, in in theater two, the biggest one was Emperor of the North, which was you know a film that could have been made Ernest Borgnine. And uh, Ernest Lee Borgnine, Marvin. yeah, Lee Marvin. Ernest Borgnine was actually in two of the films opening that week, which, <laughs> which is you know an extraordinary value for money when you think about it. But you know, it's a kind of film. I think it was Robert Aldrich directed it. Yeah. You know, it's kind of could have been made in 1960. 
you know, a, but a hobo fighting a railroad boss, uh, you know, on the railroads of America in the 30s or something. 1933, the depths of the Great Depression. An army of homeless men roamed the land, stealing rides on the railroads. They were nomads who lived by no law but their own, and dedicated to their destruction was the railroad man who stood between them and the trains. Hang on for action adventure that roars like thunder. A hobo called A Number One and a railroading man named Shaq meet in battle at breakneck speed in Emperor of the North. Theater 3 was Shaft in Africa, which I think was the third Shaft film. So an ideal Imperial 6 uh, movie in a small 300-seat theater. The Herod Experiment, which, you know, was uh, kind of, I can't even call it soft porn. I mean, I think there were naked girls in it, but it was this kind of, you know, pretending to be sort of brainy about college students having sex and living together. Uh, And again, it's restricted, but we're all 16 years old. So of course, all the ushers are in and out of that theater on a regular basis, checking the fire exits and seeing if everybody, you know, wasn't smoking or whatever they weren't supposed to be doing. Harrod College, the setting for one of the most important bestsellers of our time. The Harrod Experiment. We want to welcome you to Harrod. The question that is written on some of your foreheads is how were these selections of roommates made very carefully? Did you expect someone like me? We're going to be exploring ourselves through others. i got to see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower. Yeah. What time's your next class? Can a free society remain truly free? without a constant renewal of its values. Do you think babies could wait till it's right? The most read book on or off campus is now on the screen. The Harrod Experiment. Rated R. In Theater 5 was Dillinger, which was, you know, probably the 28th version of that story about the 30s gangster. (laughs) And then in Theater 6 was a real piece of of cinema, but, you know, it, it didn't have Ernest Borgnine in it. It had Robert Mitchum. Friends of Eddie Coyle, you know, a really gritty adult, uh, nicotine stained uh, film about a down on his heels uh, gangster that, you know, is a really very kind of smart film uh, based on a novel, as I, I think I remember. And and so that maybe that sense of like, there's something for everyone here at the Imperial Six. There, there's always something. But the sheer volume of people coming through to think that on a busy Saturday night that, you know, basically 6,000 people would come through. Every film would be sold out. And, and during the day, this, a totally different crowd of, of older people who came for the air conditioning or came to kill time. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I remember the manager, the legendary manager, Phil Trainer, I worked for, he, um, his office was up on the second uh, sort of lobby level, second floor lobby. And there was a bank of payphones right outside his office. And he, he'd always tell me stories about uh, traveling salesmen would come out of whatever the film they'd just been in, get on the phone and call the head office and say, Oh yeah, I'm just on a sales call. Like uh, it's, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll check in later. And they would just go back in to see something else. So it, it was a cross section, maybe a real cross section of Toronto too, because the movies I just cited, I mean, there's, the, the, the teenagers were there and, and couples who were dressed up to go to the movies would be uh, at, at the cinema as well. Mm-hmm. And you guys had to run all the lines up and down Young Street and Victoria, the yeah, side it was, street. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a kind of massive job. And, and, it, and it, you know, as I think you've said, this idea that there was a scarcity in, in cinema that, you know, the films would only play in so many places, unlike Doctor Strange. I mean, 
what, how many screens in Toronto is Dr. Strange occupying? You know, 50% of the screens maybe at some points. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, they're, they're just, well, that wasn't the case here. I remember lining up to get in to see Jaws uh, and, and couldn't get in, you know, you'd be lined up outside in the heat for an hour and then find out it was sold out. So, so that was the case with the Imperial six and um, we would have lineups running down uh, all the way from the Imperial Six, which is just south of Dundas, down to um, uh, almost to Massey Hall, yeah. and the same on Victoria Street. And, you know, multiple lines with multiple theaters. We had six or seven ushers up front with megaphones. And it was a very raucous uh, kind of environment. But people just accepted that. But when you would announce that a film was sold out, you know, I'm sorry, The Longest Yard, the 9.30 showing of The Longest Yard is sold out about 20% of people would say, well, what else is playing? Um, mm-hmm. Which I just can't imagine um, doing that of just like, is there another movie or, well, yeah. there is another, there's, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a Robert Redford picture that started 20 minutes ago. Yeah, that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll go see that. Um, we, it's just something we have walking do. tall starting at yeah. uh, nine forty-five, <laughs> or walking tall part two, you know, that could be, that'd be another choice. So, yeah. Well, here's, um, I'm going to dazzle you with some of the typical programming at the Imperial Six. I just found some random years and I looked them up on uh, on the Toronto Star's, uh, you know, historical records to see what was playing. So, for instance, here's what was playing in 1976 in July. The Walt Disney movie Gus. Wow. The Outlaw Josie Wales in its second sensational week. Right. <laughs> Sam Elliott in Lifeguard. Oh, I remember that one. The Big Bus, the all-star disaster movie parody. The uh, sci-fi horror movie by American International called Food of the Gods. H.G. Wells. And then finally, Mother Jugs and Speed. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, that... (laughs) That that's the kind of the perfect. Have uh, you squared the circle there? That is the perfect Imperial Six lineup of, of films. It couldn't be better. I mean, the big bus with Stockard Channing, who was a heartthrob of mine. That that yeah. you know, and and it's also you think of films like that. It's like what constituted a movie star, and like how do these pictures yeah. get made? Um, that they were going to be playing in, you know, this many, this many places across North America, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was, um, and and there was a, you know, this set of the, uh, it's important to remember too, that that stretch of young street was also, and, and became notoriously, uh, tragic, uh, you know, later on in the seventies, but it was full of strip joints and massage parlors and all sorts of the cinema, 2000, these sort of porn, porn houses. Yeah. Um, you know, and at that time, I mean, uh, hardcore pornography was still illegal, uh, in, in, in Ontario. Well, sort of anywhere in Canada really. And so the, the soft porn stuff sort of bled into the Imperial six too, that was mm-hmm. one film called, it was a compilation called the best of the New York erotic film festival. Yeah. Um, so we definitely did have, you know, softer, soft porn. Um, and, and then these, this bizarre one called Linda Lovelace for president. Um, <laughs> and her story was very tragic, but she had been, you know, I think, uh, basically forced into the porn industry. But at that point it was kind of a soft porn film for the bro- broader market. And that played yeah. at the Imperial six. And, and we were told that she was, in fact, it was in the papers that she was going to be attending a screening at the Imperial six and, and she never showed up. Um, yeah. but, but we had, uh, this array of kind of sea level celebrities who, you know, Zavira Hollander, who was the happy hooker, 
lived in Toronto, so she would just we'd see her at at movie theaters. But then we'd have the kind of titans of film culture like Clyde Gilmore, who was the uh, the terrifying film critic for the Toronto Star and the Toronto Telegram. I forget which one he was at when, but he would show up at the at the front door um, and uh, expect to be recognized by you know a pimply sixteen year old usher. Uh, you know, and why would he have to show his press pass to get into the Imperial Six? He's the great Clyde Gilmore. So. You don't you know who I am? One of those. So, uh, so it was. It was. <laughs> it was in a condensed. Uh, uh, if you took every aspect of cinema and packed it in, I mean, there weren't. I don't really remember. I can't. I'm trying to remember films that had subtitles. I mean, there definitely were d- some dubbed films there, but uh, it wasn't quite that enlightened. Maybe to have you know one of the tiny screens showing uh, true foreign films, but I might be wrong about that. That might have evolved later. Yeah. Well, okay. And now here's some more. Here's what was playing in May of 1978. This is another perfect distillation of the Imperials programming. Highballin', a Canadian exploitation movie with Jerry Reed and Peter Fonda. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a a ripoff of Smokey and the Bandit, basically. Yeah, everything about that sounds Canadian from the tax credits all the way to the tax credits. (laughs) Yeah. Death Sport with David Carradine. Saturday Night Fever, which had been playing for about six months. Coma with Jean-Via Bougeau. Oh, yeah. The Michael Crichton thriller. Something called Goodbye, Franklin High, which I've never heard of in my life. It's a forgotten coming-of-age movie. And then something called The Last Survivor, which was the English dub of a movie that you may know by a better name, Cannibal Holocaust. (laughs) <laughs> wow wow another another classic and we also had back then a very active ontario censor board they changed mm-hmm. their name to the ontario film review board but this is the agency that rated movies and you know when i was a kid i used to be uh scared semiotically of the restricted logo like i used to voraciously read all the newspapers uh, entertainment listings to see what movies were playing, but I would always get scared when I would see that a movie was restricted. It, it, it meant to me something forbidden and, and something that children should not be exposed to. And a lot of movies that played at the Imperial six were restricted. Yeah. I, I think that um, people would be shocked to see uh, the, the sheer volume of restricted sort of porn type movies that were playing. And there were kind of porn houses, uh, that, some of which were run, you know, mainstream, like the Eve cinema, I think, which was around blurred bathers. Um, and, and the kind of shocking, you know, like porn films about Nazis or, or, you know, films that sort of seem to hint at some touch of incest or something, you know, it's just like really appalling stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. but it was very, very common across, across the screens of, of uh, Toronto. So the Imperial six maybe got the slightly, slightly better. I don't think it played, you know, she will for the SS or anything, but it, it got the slightly better quality of that low quality uh, stuff. But the, yeah, the restricted, um, it wasn't, it was sort of like shaped like a key, I think that yeah. kind of restricted yeah. logo. Yeah. Um, and, and the sensor board was, yeah, the sensor board was, was super active. In fact, when I started at the national film board in 1981, one of the first films I was uh, handling as a kind of distribution person was a film called not a love story, a film about pornography, which was, had it was a feminist film made by Studio D, an anti pornography film, but it had about two minutes of of clips from hardcore porn because the whole point was 
people hadn't seen it. They didn't know from from the filmmaker's perspective how damaging uh, it was. And uh, so the censor board was in a sort of pickle because it it didn't want to it didn't want to make give it a restricted rating because now it would be approving the screening of of hardcore porn. So because the film board was a federal government agency the censor board in a, in a, a genius uh, move decided not to give it a classification at all. Mm-hmm. So it meant that no projectionist in Ontario could show the film or they'd lose their license because it didn't have the, the censored band on it. So, um, so it was still very much part of people's lives and it was very much part of the Toronto film festivals, uh, experience in those early years really mm-hmm. struggling sometimes to, uh, to get certain films, uh, approved. Well, when I was first working at TIFF, um, the arrangement with uh, the festival being allowed to show films uncut was that all the films were considered restricted, right. which meant they could show anything. They didn't have to be submitted to the censor. They wouldn't cut anything, but you also had to guarantee that everybody in the theater was above 18. And sometimes that meant that a movie that where the child was the star of the movie couldn't right. attend their own premiere. They had to go outside. <laughs> wow. Wow. And then they could come back when the movie was over. Right. Be- right. Even if the movie wasn't uh, problematic because uh, it was, it was a dispensation that they were allowed to show it with the guarantee that everyone there is of age. Stupid. Well, I, I assume as an Imperial six usher, once I put my red jacket on and black bow tie, I had some sort of police powers that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, allowed me as a 16 year old to do whatever I wanted in the cinema. So, yeah. you know, go to restricted films, beat people up, whatever was necessary. It was, yeah. you know, it was uh, outside of the law, I guess you would say. Well, I want to hear a little bit more about your manager, Phil at the theater. And, uh, wasn't he a bit of a commander of the troops? Yeah, the it place? was. He was, um, he was a wonderful guy, but he was kind of terrifying. You know, that first boss you have who seems terrifying. And, um, you know, I, I discovered later that when he had been the manager of the Imperial during that incredibly successful year prior to its closing, when it played, I think it ran the French connection and then the Godfather. So you can imagine, um, you know, and it was still making a ton of money, uh, uh, at that point, but he was, when the Imperial six opened, he was 29 years old. So to us 16 year olds, he, I thought he's 50, you know, it's, it's like when you see movies in the sixties and seventies and you see some guy who's a, uh, you know, a, a, a police detective wearing a fedora or something. You look up and the actor was, you know, 32 at the time or something. But he was, he had been, he had been working at Famous Players for, for years and been manager of different theaters. But, uh, you know, he brought a very powerful presence in the sense that this is, we are in show business. This is, we have a responsibility to the patrons to make sure the place is clean. Everything's operated well. Um you know, the snack bar is fully stocked the projection is as best as it could be. And so on a Saturday night, uh, and there's this beautiful, it's all restored now, beautiful kind of, um, railing that goes around, uh, you look down onto the lower lobby of the Imperial six, um, Phil would stand there. He'd put a tuxedo on, on a Saturday <laughs> night and he was smoking a cigar. Um, and you know, it's like, I I'm, I'm like, this is show, but I'm in, I'm in Hollywood. This is amazing. And, and I still remember, you know, I mean, most, most kids working there didn't, weren't interested in, in the, the movie business, but I was, I was, you know, reading variety when I was a teenager, but I remember the, the, the office downstairs, particularly after a very busy weekend uh, at Christmas when it might be like the towering Inferno or something like a huge film. And I remember hearing them calling 
the box office grosses into LA. And I just thought yeah. this is like, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be in Hollywood by tomorrow. Like this is, this yeah. is where my career is headed from usher to assistant <laughs> manager to, to Irving Thalberg, you know, it was a very yeah. quick move up, but Phil represented and, and, you know, occasionally we would see, uh, executives come in from famous players and, and, uh, um, these guys were all like, you had to realize this in 1973. So if you're a 60 year old man who these guys were, you know, executives and famous players to my eyes, they were all like, you know, about five feet tall with three piece suits on these, these men were born before world war one. So their yeah. careers, you know, spanned the great showbiz eras of, you know, the arrival of sound yeah. in, in, in cinema. And then the grand cinema palaces in the thirties and forties in which, you know, people went to movies three times a week. I mean, that was yeah. just what you did pre yeah. pre television. So they still, there was this weird moment where the Imperial six was now, uh, you know, represented a time where a 3000 seat theater probably wasn't going to be as viable in the future anymore. There just weren't the movie going habits were changing. There were younger audiences that were starting to, you know, have, have different, uh, they weren't going to go see the sound of music or something like that. These kind of mm -hmm. large, pictures that were made for everyone, uh, mm -hmm. a, a very general audience. So splitting up the Imperial six made a lot of business sense and the, and, and same with the uptown, but they hadn't shed, you know, that's the way culture works. It doesn't, you know, you don't snap your fingers and everybody it's suddenly the seventies or it's suddenly, you know, the twenties, it mm -hmm. takes a long time to evolve. So I was fascinated by this kind of, um, overlap of the old show business culture that Phil still represented and, uh, and, and the new experience of, of uh, a multiplex, which, you know, people found uh, yeah. kind of confusing and, and dazzling. So it was, it was a very exciting place and it fronted onto Young Street. There was a Victoria Street incident uh, as well, but it also, the first couple of summers, uh, the Young Street, what the, it was called at the time, the Young Street Mall, Young Street was closed off to kind of bring more business down. So we had everything. We had bikers and prostitutes and drug dealers and the life outside of that, um, of those front doors was just, uh, you know, thick with people. And it was yeah. before the Eaton Center, the Eaton Center started getting built, um, you know, a, a few years later. So there was still that sense of an older young street. Um, mm -hmm. and, and those, you know, people in their sixties still going to Eaton's, but people in their twenties going to strip joints, you know, all, yeah. all cheek and jowl. So, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of violence too. We were, Phil was, um, an old school disciplinarian. I remember being called down to the box office, me and my friend, Bill Wong, who were ushers and we were both, you know, six feet tall and, uh, called down to the box office. Some man was hassling the cashiers. We came down and Phil just turned to us and he said, land him. And Bill <laughs> and I looked at each other. It's like, <laughs> what, what, what did you say? Land him. So we just <laughs> took the guy and picked him up and slammed him on the ground. I mean, we're 16 years old and yeah, we're, we're allowed to do that. So we had no compunction about, you know, punching people, throwing people out. Um, there were threats. Uh, we'd, we'd sometimes throw out, you know, five teenagers our age who yeah. they would, would threaten to meet us outside the cinema afterwards, but there were 35 of us. So, you yeah. know, that was, <laughs> we weren't particularly worried. So it's, it's, I remember being pulled off a guy by a cop on Young Street who I was punching. Um, and this was just perfectly normal. This was, I was not charged with anything. It was just, 
You know, this is keeping the peace so people could have their entertainment. Let these people see the movies, for God's sake. Yeah. And now the other thing that was cool about this sort of transition of, you know, times of movie going and life in downtown Toronto, it's no coincidence that you've uh, set the Burt Xanadu legend in 1973. That feels to me like the year where Toronto transitioned from the old Toronto towards the new Toronto. Mm-hmm. It, it very much was. And I was, um, you know, I still have my scrapbooks from that time. It was a time when Toronto was changing culturally that, you know, Trudeau had, had sort of advanced this notion of multiculturalism. So there was the, the face of Toronto was changing. It wasn't just the pinched Protestant uh, orange Toronto that it had been that was starting to change architecturally, uh, you know, the CN Tower and the Eaton Center. I mean, as much as some of these things maybe are seen as architectural abominations now, uh, the, the City Hall Toronto City Hall was only, you know, seven or eight years old at that point. Uh, I remember going down when I was nine on the subway by myself to get repeated tours of the new City Hall building. So it was, it was a transformation in, in, in the city for sure. A sense uh, David Crombie was mayor. So this very progressive, um, Mm -hmm. uh, sense of, of the politics of the time. And, uh, and and so it was a, a, a transitional year. And so for me, it's a great moment uh, Bert Zanadu, who based only, I'd say, 10% of Phil Trainer. He's he's more, you know, he's kind of like Sergeant Bilko, uh, maybe Broderick Crawford mm-hmm. and Robert Moses, the New York builder, all rolled yeah. into one. It kind of, he's been, at this point, uh, Bert's been uh, elected mayor 27 times since the 1930s because Toronto used to have a mayoralty term of one year. So, uh, you know, <laughs> oh my God, that's how, that's how, that's how simple this city must have been is, you know, when you could be mayor for a year and then have to run for reelection. So it was kind of, um, he represents somebody and he, Bert was born in 1911. So, you know, you can tell I was sort of drawing from some of the old showbiz characters that I was seeing at the time in the theater, uh, representing somebody who still has this still saturated with that old sense of things, but um, you know, is trying desperately to kind of move in, into the future. So as mayor and as you said at the beginning, as mayor and owner of the Imperial Six, it seems perfectly normal to me that a mayor could also run a cinema because politicians in Toronto used to have other jobs. You, know, yes. like was, you, you could be an alderman, now a city councillor, and have a plumbing business on the side. It's like yeah. hockey players. Hockey players used to, you know, yeah. run car dealerships in the summer. So, you know, yeah. Canada and Toronto were, were simpler places. So I've just... And, you know, with Bert Xanadu over the years and on Twitter and in articles and now in the book, I've, I've tried to kind of capture that sense of a city in transition, but then make it weird and, and sort of surreal as well. Well, talking about this sort of city in transition, the Imperial was this big 3000 seat cinema, like a grand movie palace, which apparently had seen better days by the time it closed mm-hmm. down because Young Street was getting scuzzier too at this point. The renovation was very controversial. Not only did they uh, slice up this old movie house into six rooms, some of which looked like movie theaters and some of which were basically converted uh, backstage closet spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, but the most controversial element of it was the exterior design of the front entrance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Love you to paint a picture for the listener of what it looked like. Yeah, the this, the the renovation was was done by an architect named Mandel Sprockman, who'd done uh, a, a lot of other. I think he'd done the Uptown as well, and and some in other cities. And so I, I think it is um, 
it's due a kind of revival of of its its importance, and I think what it what it accomplished because it was definitely of the seventies. It was you know garish would be an appropriate word to describe it. There were you know uh, in theater one there was a giant metal sculpture of a rooster or something hanging from the <laughs> ceiling. The the backstage cinemas used you'd see exposed brick, you know, which is also still something that was a little bit of that at the backstage theater at the Uptown as well. Um, a kind of industrial, you know, Pompidou center feel in the backstage that no attempt to pretend that these were, uh, you know, that looked like theaters, uh, a space built in the twenties, three and four definitely were kind of funky, uh, spaces. And, um, but you know, this sort of very, uh, colorful murals and, and, and lots of color, all throughout the cinema. And then the front, of course, abandoned uh, that idea of a, a box office kind of as this little almost art deco, art nouveau object that's sitting right out almost on the sidewalk with one cashier inside. The The box office was pushed inside the doors and there were two cashiers in there and it was just a plastic chunk of, chunk of plastic. But the outside, the facade was stripped away and there was this giant metal plate with a huge circle in the middle uh, mark six marquees, uh, that covered three sides of that open sort of square. And then what was maybe most radical is there were, um, video screens showing trailers uh, silent, of course, but, and, uh, this was also e- extraordinary. There was a little tiny room up in the, in the, in the building where Phil showed me uh, how to, how to, um, change the massive videotapes, uh, that, that showed the trailers. And that didn't last forever. I think the, um, they finally just got rid of those because the uh, the glare on the on the glass that was a uh, sheet of glass that was covering each video screen uh, just meant you couldn't quite see them on a sunny day, so they just replaced them with posters, eventually. But but it was um, it was at the time uh, it was described by one um, critic in Toronto as monstrously ugly, and mm-hmm. uh, since the restoration, uh, when Drabinsky took it over in a kind of a military siege in 1986. Uh, and restored it back to what, you know, it was imagined what the Pantages was like for, I think, Phantom of the Opera, for the live production of Phantom of the Opera. Um, it's often been described as, oh, thank goodness, uh, the Imperial, you know, the Imperial slash Pantages slash Ed Mervish Theater has been restored back from that horrible, disgusting 1970s piece of junk of pop art crap that was the Imperial Six. And it did not feel that way to me at the time. And it certainly did not feel that way to moviegoers who, you know, uh, were, were <laughs> adored it. I mean, it, yeah. I, you know, I know so many people who, um, you know, who, uh, well, well, when you think about multiplexes now, um, there's no, there's no character whatsoever. Uh, I, I mean, even a, a kind of silver city, you know, sort of, um, space like at Young and Eglinton, there's, there's very little, uh, there's very little effort has gone into make it look like anything other than a machine to flow people through. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, 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 I mean, if you compare something like a multiplex now to the Imperial six, the Imperial six looks like, you know, Versailles practically. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I just think it was a moment. It only survived for 13 years from 73 to 86. And I think it's, um, uh, it it's deserves to have its reputation restored. It was, um, I think beautiful in its its own way. Yeah, it was very Canadian was how I described it. Like the sort of Canadian modernism that was, you know, what Canada f- sort of felt like when I was a kid in that Trudeau era, lots mm-hmm. of Helvetica where, where the marquees right, right, right. were all in like identical uh, lettering. 
and they wrapped around. So the title of the movie was on one wall. The showtimes were in the middle and uh, maybe the movie stars would be listed mm-hmm. too. But there was a, there was a democratic ideal that I, I that, that whatever's crap is playing at cinema four looks exactly like the marquee movie in cinema two. That's true. You know what the Swedish butler saw 3D in <laughs> Cinema Four has the same look as Zardoz yeah. on the marquee or or The Godfather Part Two. Well, it's interesting. You're touching on something that you know what was absent, uh, and and it feels like quite a new thing, uh, except for the trailers. But they didn't have a visual presence. You know, as it was like a a, a video screen behind a sheet of glass. Um, was that th- there were no posters, there were no images whatsoever so you know when you think of either either you know giant posters outside a movie theater like the rio or, or the biltmore or just generally that that era of you know there'd be or there'd be a, a giant graphic you know like you think of mm-hmm. uh something like citizen kane you know with uh, the giant sort of uh i don't know if it was neon but you know a, a giant sort of almost motor, not motorized but you know lit image of of, of uh, orson welles so yeah. you come to the imperial six it's like you have no idea what any of these films are about. And that maybe speaks to what I was saying earlier is that it's just, it's a movie. It's I'm just yeah. going to see a movie and I'll see a- a- any of these movies, uh, you know, whatsoever. It, it doesn't yeah. really matter. And, and uh, you know, these movie theaters, by the way, were not wheelchair accessible. Um, no, no, no. There was a giant, I mean, the giant uh, entrance, you know, that's a part of movie theater um, real estate is that, you know, the entrance is actually just a tiny narrow strip of land and you have to go up this long, very long staircase to get up to the main building, of course, because the most expensive real estate was on Young Street. So they had the tiniest little, uh, you know, st- stretch. And, and that's, you know, it's true. Of, it was true of a lot of cinemas. So the cheaper real estate at the back, but, you know, the real estate was, was what led to the demise of the Imperial Six because uh, famous players only owned part of the building and a, an American woman owned another part. And that's what, Karczewinski yeah. was able to seize on in 86. They let the lease expire on that space. And as soon as it did, Drabinsky pounced on it. And he, he took that space, which meant that famous players was now cut off from the property they owned outright. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was an amazing, uh, an amazing uh, feat of, of uh, bravura by uh, Drabinsky because uh, as the story goes, famous players, was trying to sort of play hardball, I think, with the uh, with the owner of the that portion of the property, which their family had owned for decades, and uh, the lease had technically expired, and they hadn't renewed. They think they were trying to get a, a better deal, and he just swooped in. He flew down to Michigan, I think it was, and uh, negotiated with her, and then showed up in the middle of the night with uh, Doberman pinchers and security yeah. guards and lawyers, and and they just sealed it off completely. Yeah. And uh, that what led to a huge legal battle, which which he won uh, eventually. And so yeah. he did open up a portion of it as a cinema very very briefly. I remember seeing the movie Wall Street there in its opening night. And uh, but that was that was the end. Famous players just you know gave up at, at, at that point. And it's sad too. Like there was a brief moment where famous players was thinking of you know well we still need we need a major presence in downtown Toronto. So there was. Uh, uh, an old building right at the corner opposite Massey Hall that they had announced they were going to acquire and build another sixplex there. And so there was, you know, and they were also going to do uh, additions to the university theater and that area was going to be the sort of more, more multiplexes. I mean, they ended up having the Cumberland there in, in Yorkville, but um, 
you know, it was a, the idea of these sort of rival exhibition companies fighting to have major footprints, huge theater spaces in downtown Toronto just seems, you know, you can only be nostalgic for that. I wish they were fighting over, you know, who's going to build the grandest uh, palace now. But yeah, yeah, so that was that was the end of the Imperial in, in 86. Well, it's hard to imagine that there'd be like uh, many uh, theatrical exhibition empires operating in Canada. But when I was a kid, there was uh, Odeon cinemas, famous players, and something called 20th century theaters. Right. And I, right. I presume that these uh, companies were the subsidiaries of studios. I, uh, I believe I might be wrong, but I, at some point, famous players in 20th century merged. Uh, merged or they were, you know, same parent company because I think the town, for example, uh, was a 20th century theater. So it seemed when I was working there, it didn't really matter. You know, we would get mm-hmm. free passes and, uh, maybe the maybe the little stub said 20th century other than famous players, but it was all yeah. seemed to be the same corporate empire. And then the 20th century brand, which was this, as I remember, was a kind of a very nice little bit of design, mid-century mm-hmm. design. It, it just seemed to disappear as a, as a brand. Yeah, because when I was a kid, the movie listings were what's playing at the Odeon cinemas, what's playing at famous players, what's playing at 20th century theaters, and then mm-hmm. all the the independent cinemas. Yeah. And then in the late 70s, Garth Drabinsky entered this market with Cineplex, and he opened the an even more ambitious multiplex concept around the corner from the Imperial Six, uh, the Eaton Center Cinemas, which was an 18-screen uh, venue, most of which were shoeboxes. I, I read that the smallest theater had 50 seats and the largest theater had 125 seats. <laughs> and I think, I believe at one point they even expanded it to 21 screens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think they were all 16 millimeter, uh, which would be, you know, because I mean, yeah, it's hard to imagine uh, they would have enough 35 millimeter projectors, even with double booths. So it was economical to show 16. And uh, in a small theater, I think people didn't, didn't know the difference. So, but, but it was also, you know, it was great because it brought all sorts of films that would never, you know, imagine if you could program a 16 millimeter print of a foreign film in a 50 seat theater, you don't really need to make uh, a lot of money on that to, uh, to, to make it worthwhile. So it, it did last uh, quite a long time. And I think he was in partnership with Nat Taylor, who was one of the legendary figures in Canadian exhibition, who I think technically opened the first one of the first twin screens maybe in the world. I think it was the town or by town in Ottawa um, years before the, the Imperial six. So a real pioneer in, in cinema and kind of a mentor to uh, Garth Rubinsky. I have very fond memories of movies that I saw at the Imperial Six because uh, I was a movie nerd from a very, very young age. And I was constantly forcing my parents to take me to movies that were not for children. Uh, and I and they humored me. I remember um, one memorable screening I went to at the Imperial Six. I forced my dad to take me to see the Joan Rivers movie Rabbit Test, which was in <laughs> Cinema 4. <laughs> right. Cinema 4, 300 seats. That sounds about yeah. right. Uh, and the entrance to the Cinema 4, I believe, was uh, it, there was a kaleidoscope that was bounced off a mirror that right. was uh, spinning over a metal plate, like um, a metal floor plate. And it was very transfixing as you would come in. It didn't really feel like a movie theater in there. It looked, it felt kind of like an abandoned uh, storage space that got converted. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we we used to the ushers. We used to go into uh, I think it was theater four, and there was a, a a ladder at the back part of the fire exit, and we would climb up the ladder and go on the roof of the building to watch the Eaton Center being built. So yeah, you could definitely do that when there were only three people in the theater and nobody was nobody was questioning it. But but those sorts of touches were part of the design of of Mandel Sprackman and and. You know, for me, the movies that stand out most are the ones that playing there when I was an usher, of course, because you'd see bits and pieces of movies over and over again, you know, and Mm -hmm. uh, to this day, uh, last night, Papillon was on television, Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman. And, uh, you know, to this day, my friend Bill Wong and I will still speak to each other. Uh, I might not see him for five, seven, 10 years, and we'll just still start speaking to each other in the voices of Steve McQueen and, and, uh. Uh, or, or, you know, uh, some quote from the way we were with, uh, with Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford, it just comes back immediately. But I'd say the ones that had the most impact on us as teenagers working there were the Bruce Lee movies. Cause Bruce Lee died basically the month around the time that the theater opened. So all these Bruce Lee, you know, of course they were going to exploit it. Uh, films like Chinese connection and fists of fury, uh, mm-hmm. came out and, uh, it was, they just nonstop Bruce Lee that whole summer was, uh, it was just extraordinary, extremely popular stuff. And they were retitling older films he'd made. So you weren't quite sure which Bruce Lee movie. Have I seen that Bruce Lee movie? Yeah. Uh, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. People were, uh, really into them. And then there were also those ripoff Bruce Lee movies, the life of Bruce Lee. And they yeah. had actors named Bruce Lai. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those, those must've played at the Imperial. Yeah. I, I think that you could probably, uh, you could probably write a master's thesis about, uh, about the, the Kung Fu genre and subgenre just from the ones that played at the Imperial six in the seventies. Yeah. Cause it, it, uh, they were immensely, immensely popular. And, and I don't know, you know, I, I was a kid at the time. I don't know how the booking worked, like, you know, how they made those decisions. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to write a book about the Imperial six and, and to my dismay, I discovered that basically famous players destroyed its archives. So there's very little record, uh, of, of that, but you know, those decisions that made into, what, what could play. But I think, as I said, it was maybe more of a sense that we want to have a broad offering, uh, for people. I mean, you're right. Maybe now all six screens would be five of the six screens would be Dr. Strange. And, uh, you know, the other would be a Marvel film as well or something, you know, that just, it's, it's just excluding, uh, a, a public. So kind of respect maybe for a movie going public and say, um, there's, there's going to be something for you here, um, no matter what your age, whatever your, your tastes in one, one building. Well, it was very, uh, in, influential on me, like uh, a lot of my sort of, uh, eclectic taste. If I wanted to explore, uh, you know, trashy, uh, modern American cinema, the, in most of the time I would find myself at the Imperial six where, you know, I saw everything from James Bond movies to clash of the Titans. Uh, I saw that movie called it came from Hollywood. The, uh, mm-hmm it was a montage film with John Candy and Eugene Levy about like bad B movies and stuff like that kind of stuff was the stuff that showed up at the Imperial six. But I wanted to share with you uh, a formative nightmarish movie going experience I had at the Imperial six. I don't even remember what the movie was that I was there to see. I guess I was 11. And before the movie, we got that classic teaser trailer for the shining. The one oh, that's right. just the shot of the elevator door opening and the hallway being filled up with blood. Right, right. I jumped out of my chair and ran up the aisle. Oh my <laughs> God. I could not stand it. 
I was wow. so terrified. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Wow, well, it, it's it's kind of, you know, this compressed era too of a you you know, I'm more familiar with the early 70s and you were you're younger. You think about something you said to come from Hollywood. I mean, it's sort of meta because that's a compilation of footage from films, some of which had played at the Imperial Six. So, you know, yeah. it didn't. It's like that dissonance I have when you think about the film American Graffiti in '72, and the cut line was "Where were you in '62?" It'd be like us making a film now, nostalgic for the year 2012 it's yeah. like remember back then when you know so <laughs> there the, was a, a massive cultural shift and, and you know i think of the imperial six you know is kind of it's just fascinating to me as kind of this engine uh if you look at it not just you know because of the film what the films were they're playing there at any particular moment what you experienced but it was like this engine of like sex and violence and masculinity and emotion and sugar and salt and capitalism and you know all of these things in this big machine that uh for most people you know it just was it was a night out but you know i i I, it's sad that there isn't more documentation of these kinds of places because i think it's uh would reflect a real there's some great academics like paul moore in toronto uh at uh, uh toronto metropolitan university doing really interesting work about the history of cinemas in in canada but you know the place they had in the culture um, and, and trying to understand the place that Young Street has had as this kind of entertainment center, uh, not just for films, but for for uh, for sex work and for live music. Um, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's a kind of transformative the, the, before the corporatization of the of the main street. And uh, and you know, from this eclectic brew of all these sort of movie going choices that we had and we're so lucky to have in Toronto is one of the reasons why the Toronto Film Festival emerged and has been able to thrive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean, I think um, uh, the slate of films that um, the Imperial Six represented, uh, it, it you know, you could have a film education out of that. Uh, if, if that was your only diet, it wasn't my only diet, but if that was your only diet, it wouldn't be the worst thing. If you just spent five years in the seventies watching movies, the Imperial six, you'd be quite well versed in certainly in American independent cinema, uh, to, to some extent, uh, you know, but, but also the weird fringes of, of, of cinema and, and how things were, were marketed. I mean, it's astonishing to watch. I know as you've done some of the trailers from that time and, uh, you know, how almost any, almost any subject could be kind of, you know, smooth, the edges could be smoothed out to kind of uh, sell something in a certain way that, that you still feel they were appealing to a, a general audience that at least in the studio's mind that still existed. That was just like, what, what, what are the new movies this Friday? Let's just go see a movie. And, uh, and as I said, you know, people who just literally would show up at the Imperial six with no sense of what was playing, but they were going to see a movie that night. Yeah. That's it. I, I Come don't hell or high any, water. Yeah. I don't know if anybody does that anymore. Does anybody, show up and say, Oh, Dr. Strange. Hmm. That's interesting. I wonder what that's about. I'll take one <laughs> ticket. You know, it's, it's, uh, cinemas are destinations now for, uh, for people with very specific tastes. Your book is, is quite wonderful. I, uh, I received a copy of it a few days ago. Um, and I wanted to, uh, give you a chance to tell my listeners about this book. Like how did it become a reality? 
How did Bert Xanadu make the leap from Twitter to the printed page? <laughs> well, it, it was, I mean, I, I, um, uh, I started on Twitter in 2009 as, as myself and I was still working at the film board. So I used it as a lot of people did at the time. It's like, I guess I'm supposed to comment on things or I'm supposed to promote my own work or something. And I was going to the Toronto film festival. And I remember being on the streetcar going past the Roy Thompson hall. And there was a big, huge festival party there. And I saw George Clooney outside of the window of the streetcar. And I actually felt sorry for myself. It's like, how come I, I'm not getting invited to these kind of whatever cool party he's going to. So I decided, you know what, I'm just going to pretend that I'm, I'm going to make up parties at TIFF. So I started tweeting, um, just fake parties, you know, that I was at, like I was at Quiznos with Klaus Kinski, who was obviously <laughs> dead at that point. And so I just did that for a couple of years. But at the time, um, there was a blog called Mondoville that, um, Mark Weisblatt and George Perdicaris had started and, and these things were still relatively new. So they just started running my tweets, um, as part of their content and didn't ask me, I was fine with it. And then when TIFF was over, I had a respectable job as an NFB producer. So I thought I can't do these fake tweets forever. So they just said, do you want to do something else? And I invented Bert, um, combining, as you'd said, our common interest of cities and movies. I mean, what, what in the world can't you talk about if you, if you put them under those two umbrellas, cities and movies. So I tweeted as Bert, uh, uh, secretly for about five years until I left the film board. I only a few people knew who I was. I even wrote articles as Bert for spacing in the Torontoist and, um, but my identity was kept secret. So when I left the film board, I just kept going. And at some point I realized I reached about 9,000 tweets. And just to let your listeners know, the book is not a collection of 9,000 tweets, but uh, I, I kind of creamed the best of them. But I, I just felt I'd assembled a kind of weird, um, you know, uh, <laughs> a, a Marvel universe, uh, except it was uh, a cast of characters um, centered around Bert's Anadu. I felt I'd kind of built one Lego brick at a time, this world of Toronto in 1973. I mean, he's constantly celebrating New Year's Eve, but it never turns to 1974. It kind of reverts back to 73. <laughs> um, but, you know, I just, it was kind of a playground for me. And, and, you know, making films as a producer, it's extremely collaborative. It's a creative job, but it's an extremely collaborative job. With something like Bird, it was I didn't have to collaborate with anybody, and I think anybody doing anything creative wants to have both of those things. You know that some things are purely yours, but I felt I had enough of a critical mass of stuff, and and um, uh, I I you know I hoped or thought maybe people um, would would be interested in in something in in book form, and uh, so I wrote some new material uh, for the book, and I collected and assembled in a hopefully an interesting way uh, articles and and tweets. It's 1973, so they're not tweets. Bird is issuing these via telex to yeah. anybody who has a telex machine, which, you know, I'm sure most of you, most of your parents had telex machines in their living room. Um, but it has an introduction as a forward by Lauren Green and a sexier forward by Marlena Dietrich. So I, I hope people will, I hope people will re respect my, uh, my respect for history because I wouldn't put anything in that wasn't actually existing in 1973. Marlena Dietrich used to appear at the Imperial Room at the Royal York all the time. Yeah. And uh, Lauren Green uh, was, you know, a proud Canadian, former voice of doom during yeah. World War II. So so I, I've kind of also drawn from the incredible treasure that is the Toronto Archives. And they have millions of photographs of, of Toronto and uh, they have a Twitter feed. So often as Bird, I would just steal whatever they had just tweeted and recaption it. So I've included some of those photos 
uh, in the book as well. And a lot of cinema, a lot of it has to do with the politics of Toronto in, in Bird's, Bird's Twisted Mind, but also movies that played at the Imperial Six, but almost none of them are the actual movies that played at the Imperial Six. I just made up. I decided that Peter Lawford was, <laughs> who I kind of loathe. I, yeah. In Bird's Mind, he's the most masculine uh, action hero uh, it, there is. So his movies are constantly uh, coming to the Imperial Six, you know, yeah. films with titles like Gut Punch. Uh, you know, they're just extremely violent. They're unnecessarily violent films. But, yeah. uh, you know, there's a whole series of films that play at the Imperial Six in Bird's World uh, based on the uh, athletic exploits of a guy who has chronic diarrhea. He's an Olympic athlete and he's, you know, it's not going to stop him from being the uh, first one-man bobsledder, you know. So so it's it's there's enough in it that represents the real vibe of Toronto, which I think at the time, too, was still that kind of gray. It was a very dull, gray pinched kind of city in a way and, you know, kind of filthy and, uh, schlubby. And, um, you know, so Bert is a, a kind of a constantly in a booster mode. Um, and he goes to Hollywood on a regular basis. You know, he has deep Hollywood roots with major stars like Maury Amsterdam, you know, some of the yeah. top, the top stars of our time. Um, so it's just, it's play for me. And, um, uh, it's, it's assembled into, into a form that, uh, uh that I hope, uh, people find appealing. Oh no, it's very funny. I love the um, plausibility of a lot of the movies that are playing at the Imperial Six in Bert's imagination. There were a bunch of Peter Lawford movies, for instance, in yeah. the seventies that have been yeah. lost to history. Yeah, it's not too far. I mean, I I always try to cast the movies with people who, you know, there there'd sometimes be like at the Imperial Six. There was a there was a movie called The Klansman. You know, kind of one of those yeah. southern things with Richard Burton. Richard yeah. Burton, you know, near the end of his career, yeah. like, you know, or there were, uh, there was a film called McHugh with John Wayne, who was like 107 years old at the time, but he was playing an action hero, you know? So yeah. it, it wasn't hard for me as Bird's Antidote to imagine these bizarre casting, you know, it'd be like Joey Heatherton and Dame Edith Evans in the same movie, you know, yeah. uh, or, you know, just five actors who all have the same first name, um, <laughs> you know, like all the, all the actors whose name have the word, cliff in them in a movie called the cliffs of navarone because it would yeah. be like the fourth sequel or something that it's not far off you're right from what was actually what was actually playing there like there's a dovetailing between uh bert's version of the imperial six and your life at the imperial six that's embodied in the fact that uh, the premiere of the stomp and tom connor's movie across this land was held at the imperial six yeah it was it was you know the imperial six in its own way was one of the few <laughs> refuges for canadian films i mean the uh and tom i remember he got married at city hall uh which wasn't far away maybe that was the moment where bert was born in my uh, tiny brain uh he, he walked for they think they walked the or five minute walk from, five minute walk from city hall and came to see the film but being the Imperial Six, it wasn't a premiere. It's just like, it's another movie playing. But yeah. there were occasional, you know, there were occasional Canadian films that, again, lost to memory, like Recommendation for Mercy about Stephen Truscott, who was uh, accused of, uh, jailed for killing a girl, you know, um, that would now be sort of CTV, you know, made for TV movies, but was a theatrical release or or The Hard Part Begins, which was actually a pretty good uh, Don Shabib film, I think with Bonnie Bedelia, you know, so like these really uh, interesting little Canadian films, but of course there was no 
there was no promotion. There was no sense that they were Canadian films. And in a weird Imperial Six way, it didn't matter. It's just a movie. So it was kind of a very democratic space, actually, where um, Canadian films were just movies, which, you know, I think any of us who worked in film would just kind of lusted for over the years is that Canadian films were, were um, seen as, as not up to the task of entertaining audiences somehow. But in yeah. the Imperial Six, they s- stood proudly next to Bruce Lee and Burt Reynolds. Yeah, the Imperial Six was a theater that would, you know, they'd play Deliverance when it got re-released, and they'd also play Rituals, the Canadian ripoff right, of Deliverance. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. You could do your whole master's thesis from across three or four theaters there. Your new book, I Own This Town, the Mayor Burt Xanadu Xanthology, now available in bookstores everywhere. Jerry, where can people find this book? Um, if you live in Toronto, it's at the Spacing Store on Richmond Street, a wonderful store that's all things Toronto. Uh, but for anybody else, it's available on Amazon, Google Books, uh, Kobo, um, Smashwords, uh, and Nook um, as an ebook. And some of those places also have a paperback edition. And where can people find Bert Xanadu on Twitter? Bert Xanadu is uh, at Movie Mayor. On, on Twitter. And, uh, you know, and if you're a particular fan, Bert would be willing to insult you or rezone your property. Depends how you, um, I'm thinking of selling that for 50 bucks, you know, I'll just, maybe as a father's day gift, Bert can, um, enact some municipal power over him. I want to also mention that, uh, I'm in the, uh, acknowledgements and dedications in this book, which I was very honored to see when I got a copy and you have also been very supportive of this podcast. And I wanted to thank you personally for that. Oh, not, not at all. Not at all. It's a, it's a wonderful resource. And I'm, I've often found resonances with the films you're talking about that I, I was listening, for example, to the one about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. And I think I, I didn't see it when it first opened. So I saw it at the Imperial six as an usher. So my, my experience of some of the films you've talked about were, um, you know, friends of Eddie Coyle, something like that to, to the films that I know you admire as well. We're imagine seeing a film a hundred times, but in, in tiny chunks at different moments. Um, although with, with some films like, um, like the longest yard, I probably saw the ending the last two minutes, 150 times. Cause you yeah. had to come in and open the doors and get ready to get people out. So we knew the dialogue, uh, uh down cold, but, uh, your, your podcast is terrific. Thanks. Well, thank you. And please come back to the show. You're welcome anytime. Thanks, Jesse. Patrons of the Junk Filter podcast help to make this show possible. We're going to have another bonus episode next. Rob Russo is joining me. We're going to be talking about the career of Ricky Gervais. To become a patron, please go to patreon.com slash junkfilter. And please follow us on Twitter at junkfilterpod. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken. And thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.